Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Ever History. I'm your host, Professor Natalie Harpin. Today, I wanted to talk about something that is being introduced to the assembly. It's going to go through, but it is called AB 1856. And I guess I should have finished that by saying it's it's going through the process of being signed so that it'll be permanent, but it's AB 1856. And it is for community colleges and particularly part-time employees. So I was made aware of this because being that I work at a community college, we get emails regarding especially legislation that's going to affect the populace of instructors and staff that we have on our campuses. So this is the recent one, and it would amend Section 87482.3 and 87482.5 of the Education Code as it relates to the community colleges. Now, from previous podcasts, if you've heard, I've talked about adjuncting in general and community college instruction. And just to do a brief recap about that before I get into this proposal, most of the community college faculty, and I'm not actually sure about staff, I would say, but definitely for sure, most of the faculty are part-time adjunct instructors. And so because of that, they have contractual employment and it's usually only good for the length of the term and there are certain rules and stipulations about how much they can teach and depending on the union bargaining agreement for any particular campus or a district which may comprise of a few campuses that relates to what what type of healthcare package they're offered if they're offered any dental or vision packages as a part of that and even you know the mileage reimbursement rates for things that they're doing on their off time, all those things are determined by the district governing board. And so because most instructors and professors who teach at a college campus, at the community college campuses in general, are part-time adjunct instructors, they don't have a reasonable assurance of guaranteed employment. And in the past, that And I mean, like far past, like not within the last 10 years, but prior to 10 years ago, that wasn't necessarily a big deal because it wasn't as heavily impacted. So you had more flow of instructors. We didn't necessarily have so many people who were staying in the job market as long as they are now. And we know that that's not necessarily their fault. It's because of the system we live in, in which they have to keep working for longer periods of time to be able to bank retirement, to be able to take care of themselves in their old age and things like that. So the the people who are the part-time adjunct instructors are only given assurance for their employment for that semester. And even when they're given that assurance for the semester, it can be reduced at any time. So the cap for the community college instructors, the part-timers, is that you can only teach 67% of a full-time contract. So what I'll explain, I guess how I should explain it is that generally speaking, each lecture class is 0.20. So it's 20% of a full-time load, which is why if you're a full-time community college faculty, you teach five classes at a minimum and you can technically teach up to seven. So 
the cap is 67% for part-time instructors. So they generally can't have more than three lecture classes. And that would also include maybe even a lab class as part of that, you know, equation, but they have a certain number that they can't go over that's determined by the state. Now, in order to make their bills and to, you know, live in the system that we live in, and especially in San Diego County, most adjunct instructors teach at two or three different college campuses, and they generally you know, try to teach as many as they are legally allowed to. So you may have an instructor who teaches three classes at one district to that 67%, and they have to teach at a campus within another district, which is generally another, you know, part of town that, um, and then maybe try to see as much, teach as much as they can within that 67%. So maybe one or two classes or maybe three. Some people teach at three campuses part-time. So it just goes to show you that a lot of people are teaching at many different campuses and people who are adjunct instructors have sometimes been called freeway flyers because they're we were constantly on the run. Like when I was when I was an adjunct instructor before I was full time, I was constantly on the road, right? Like on the freeway driving to another campus. Sometimes you have like 20 or 30 minutes in between. And so it's a high stress situation. Now Adjuncting in general used to be something that people would do who had retired or maybe would just teach like, you know, one class or something like that. It wasn't some way, it wasn't the way that people made the bulk of their money. I'm not exactly sure when that started. I'd have to like talk to people who are more more veteran in the field of teaching and especially college instructing. But what the last 10, 15 years it is the way that a lot of community college instructors have been able to, you know, work in the field of education. So they haven't been able to find full-time employment other places, so they've had to rely on adjuncting at multiple districts, again, and teach as much within that 67% as they can. And so when somebody's contract gets reduced, that percentage, because with an adjunct instructor, you could think that you're going to teach three classes, which would be 60%. So, you know, that's, you know, completely within your allowed ability to teach for a certain district. And they may need to take one or two or all of your classes away because it's always based on enrollment and if the full-time faculty have their classes. So if a full-time faculty's class doesn't fill and the administrators have to cancel it, they're going to replace that fifth class with one from a part-timer because the full-time person has to meet their contract, right? They have a guarantee of five classes so that they can, um, you know, meet their requirement. So where AB 1856 comes in is that it wants to increase the allowed percentage of community college instructors to be from 67% max, and sometimes it's 66, again, depending on the district, but generally it's 67, um, but they want to increase it to 85% of the full-time contract. So that would mean for most community college instructors who are just teaching a lecture class, like not doing a lab or anything like that, that they could teach a fourth lecture class, that they could teach up to four, which would again give them access to more money within the district and may mean that they have to drive less areas, right, to meet that, um, to meet that, income need, 
Okay. I'm, I'm trying to think about how I want to say it, but so they can make the amount of money that they need to make to take care of themselves and their families. So the way the legislation reads is it says it's an existing law that establishes community California community colleges under the administration of the board of governors of California community colleges. Existing law authorizes the establishment of community college districts under the administration of community college governing boards and authorizes these districts to provide instruction at community college campuses throughout the state. Existing law requires community colleges as a condition of receiving funding allocated for student success and support program we'll talk about that in a second, to negotiate in good faith with the exclusive represent, representatives for part-time temporary faculty, the terms of reemployment preference for part-time temporary faculty assignments based on minimum standards up to the range of 60 to 67% of a full-time equivalent load and a regular evaluation process for part-time temporary faculty as specified. This bill would instead require community colleges as a condition of receiving funding for the student equity and achievement programs to negotiate in good faith with the exclusive representatives for part-time temporary faculty on the terms of reemployment preference for part-time temporary faculty assignments and the regular evaluation process for part-time temporary faculty. The bill would instead require that negotiation on reemployment preference for part-time temporary faculty assignments be based on the minimum standards not exceeding 80 to 85 percent of a full-time equivalent load and would prohibit the community college district from restricting the terms of the negotiated agreement to less than that range unless explicitly agreed upon by an individual part-time temporary faculty member and the district. The bill would require that the community college district commence the negotiation of these terms no later than the expiration of any negotiated agreement in effect on January 1st, 2023. And for any community college district that does not have a collective bargaining agreement in effect as of January 1st, 2023, upon the effective date of the bill, the bill would make conforming changes and repeal obsolete provisions. So under the existing law, a person employed to teach adult or community college classes cannot do so more than 67% of the hours per week of a full-time employee having comparable duties, excluding substitute service, is classified as a temporary employee and not a contract employee. This bill would change the maximum time that a part-time temporary employee may teach without becoming a contract employee to 85% of the hours per week of a full-time employee having comparable duties. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about real quick before we continue is the student equity and achievement program. So most of the California community colleges signed up for and got that grant funding. So basically those types of programs were things that were centered on marginalized groups, um, minority groups, marginalized ethnic groups, racial groups, gender groups sexual orientation groups. The purpose of it was, was to achieve the, a better gap. Well, it's called the equity gap, but to make it more equitable and to provide support and services for students who come from these varied backgrounds. So because most community colleges did get that funding, this is saying that they now have to offer up to 85% of um, excuse me, up to 85% of the full-time load available to their part-time instructors instead of 60 to 67%. 
And it's also important to note that it also includes things that aren't necessarily done in the classroom, like lecturing. So it's saying that it could also include assignment time, which is essentially like part of that percentage that would be people doing things like writing grants, being student club advisors who are on some type of governance when it comes to you know committees on campus and things like that. It's not necessarily just people who are working in the classroom because oftentimes support staff are also kept to that same maximum if they are not full-time contract employees. So that's counselors, that's going to be people who are, you know, integral to the functioning of the community college and also for students who want to transfer and have, you know, the support that they need to do that. That is why I wanted to go ahead and make that note that it's not just instructors, it's also support staff and, you know, they're just as equally important on the community college campus as the instructors are. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting was that if this passes, and I'm assuming it has to go to vote this fall, I need to double check on that, but it's it's had no opposition so far when you look at the history and the bill analysis. It hasn't had any votes against it. Now, in the event that this passes and it goes through, I guess, you know, being signed by the Senate, um, it's going to definitely impact some parts of the community college, and that's why I kind of wanted to talk about it on the podcast, because like I said, up to now, and you know, we already started the semester, so this would technically, I guess, be the last semester that people are capped at three classes per district. And so just to give you an example, if you're in San Diego County, um, City, Mesa, and Miramar, those community college campuses are all part of one district. Southwestern is its own district. Um, Cuyamaca and Grossmont are part of their own district. So that's just why I'm specifying districts and not campuses. So that's why I was saying if somebody is teaching at multiple different districts to get up to that limit, they may be teaching at City and Mesa, right? So they may be doing two classes at City, one at Mesa, and then they'd have to, you know, maybe drive to Palomar College and work in that district to meet, you know, maybe have another two or three classes or go to Southwestern, um, one of the satellite campuses and to meet, you know, their bills and be able to take care of themselves. So of course, on the surface, this is great because it would allow people, like I said, to teach up to a fourth class at any given, within any given district. And I think would greatly reduce their need to have to drive to multiple campuses around the county in order to, you know, take care of themselves. And so that would also mean that they're expending less gas, spending less money in order to just do their jobs. Now, some of the things that I thought of immediately after I read about the legislation and I had read the email from the union president, or at least the union regional, one of the regional people um, who was talking about it, was that... I wonder how that would affect the percentage when it comes to like the medical benefits. Okay, so let me explain. So each district gets to decide how much you have to be teaching and for how long before you get offered a medical benefits package. So when I was an adjunct instructor 
and I worked within the Southwestern Community College District, they required that you teach three classes, which is the max, right? That you have to be teaching three classes in the semester for you to receive medical benefits. So I think I may have mentioned this before, but let's say you're offered, because we're in the fall, so let's say you're offered at the beginning of August, they say, hey, Natalie, we want you to teach these three classes. Okay, fine. Now, with the benefits department, they already know to have me come in and they are going to give me, you know, the information I need regarding what healthcare package they offer, how much it's going to cost me. When I was employed in that district as an adjunct before, like I said, you had to be teaching three classes and they only offered a Kaiser Permanente package. And I think it was like $250 a month, which is really, really expensive, especially because the amount of money that you're making per month at the time for me for three classes was I'm trying to think it had to have been close to like maybe man I'm trying to think of how much was such a long time ago probably about three grand so 250 was a lot right it was almost 10 percent of my check um and again i didn't have any other package options so versus in other districts they may give you a package that says hey you know you can pick this one at 250 or you can pick this one that you know is only in cases of emergency or whatever and it's only going to cost 100 each district gets to decide what package they want to offer part-time people however If you're somebody who is expecting three classes, like in my example, if I'm expecting three classes in the beginning of August, but then like the day before classes start or the first day of classes or anytime within the first two weeks of classes, they say, hey, you know what, Natalie, a full-time person's class fell off. We had to give them one. We gave them one of yours because, you know, that's what they're allowed to do. So now you only have two. Now I don't have health care. Okay. And it's important to note that they only offered a medical package at the time. They did not offer dental or vision, okay? Now, when I was, well, I am, I still do teach at UCSD, but UCSD, they have a whole UC bargaining unit. They have a union. So there, after I had taught there for about a year, I want to say like nine months, I had taught enough sections to be eligible for full medical benefits. So when I first started at UCSD and what I started January 2016, they give you the minimum that they have to offer. So it was sort of like one of those emergency packages, like in the event of an actual emergency, you can go to the doctor and we'll cover most of it. But because I had healthcare through other avenues, I wasn't really worried about it. But after, like I said, after about nine months, they had sent me an email and said, hey, you've been working here long enough. You've taught enough classes. We're now offering you a comprehensive full benefits package and we're covering all of it. Okay. If you go with like the basic plan and then if you want to have like elevated health insurance, it's going to cost maybe, I think at the most it would have been like a hundred dollars a month. And that was for a PPO. Okay. So Southwestern was offering me an HMO plan. If you're old enough and you, you know, do medical stuff through your job, you know what I'm talking about. It's such a big difference for things like holistic medicine. If you want to go to acupuncture or, you know, the chiropractor, usually with HMOs, you have to go through 
There are doctors, you have to get referrals for everything you do. With PPO plans, you can just go to whoever you want and your insurance just says, okay, meet, once you meet your deductible, we're covering it. Don't worry about it. So I'm working, I was working in two different areas on two different parts of the county with two different bargaining units. And one was saying you have to pay us $250 a month and it's just a, a basic HMO. And one was saying we're covering all of your medical benefits and giving you a PPO plan. And if you want to elevate that, it's only going to cost you less than half of what you're paying at the other school. So naturally, I didn't have to think about it. I switched over my insurance. But now that they're going to make it so that somebody could, you know, teach up to 85%, I'm wondering what's going to be the minimum required of the medical benefits, right? Are districts that kept it before where you have to be at least at 60% to get medical benefits, are they going to say now, oh, well, now you have to be teaching at the 80% to get medical benefits? Or are they going to leave it at 60%? So that's something that I thought about immediately. Another thing that's really important to note is that enrollment, and I think I, I did talk about this a few weeks ago with podcasts. Um, I think I was, I think it was called "Is More Better," but the community colleges are bleeding students, and that typically happens when we have an economy where there's a lot of jobs, because of course people would rather be making money with that time. And generally, in times of recession, that is when people go back to school because there's not as many jobs available, and so they're able to get you know funding through the state to go to school and or even money to go to school. So that's part of the natural progression of everything, but if we're already having low enrollment across the community colleges, yes, that's great to increase the number, but is it going to be realized, right? Is it is it going to mean something for most of the people who are community college instructors, especially because now that we have the, I forget the number, but it's the Area F requirement, which is basically that you have to go through some type of a cultural competency course or a set of courses or um, like an eth- it's an ethnic studies component. So you need to take either a black st- uh, black studies courses, um, Latin X courses, Native American studies courses, or Asian American studies courses. Those four areas are meant to discuss the experience of those groups of people within the United States. Um, there are more departments being created, right? So there's a lot of schools that are now creating an ethnic studies department. And I work in an ethnic studies department at the community college that I work at. So because they have more full-time faculty being hired, that's going to pull from the classes that were available to adjuncts in the first place. So what I'm saying is that, yes, I think that this is a great thing for people so that, again, they are expending less energy driving back and forth between campuses. And if they can teach that fourth class at the same school instead of having to drive across town to teach that fourth class at another district because of the cap um, that they're allowed to teach, that's great. But is it going to be fully realized by the people in practice, right? Is this just something that is being done on paper or is it going to have a positive effect in practice? Another thing that we have at the community college is something that's referred to as either vesting or priority of assignment. So Within the districts, after you've been teaching there part-time for a certain length of service, continual, so not including summer, not including intercession, 
then you are eligible for something called vesting or priority of assignment. Now, most of the canvases just give it to you. The community colleges just give it to you once you've gotten, I think it's generally that seventh semester. So once you've taught for fall, spring, fall, spring, fall, spring, perm, you know, continually, so basically three full years, then you get that, it's kind of like tenure for part-time people. So it says, hey, you know, as long as there are classes, we have to give you seniority over those classes. Mm-hmm. And most of you who are familiar with education, even if you teach K through 12, know how seniority works or even with nursing, right? Like most jobs have a, a process of seniority. Um, so what happens is, is that you get that assurance of work, but there's an average. So if you've been constantly teaching two classes over the three years, then your vesting average for like a lecture would be 40%. So meaning two classes. So they have to at least offer you two. But again, if there are no classes to be had, then you might teach one or less. But the idea is is that as long as there's a pool of classes, then they need to reasonably offer you a certain number of classes because now you're used to making a certain amount of money. You've shown service to the campus at this amount of you know capacity. So it's in good faith to continue that. The issue is that, like I said, there are multiple people over time who've gotten those things and it does go in order of seniority so if you have somebody like I mentioned in the beginning who loses a class as a part-time person if their class was if their third class was taken away from them but somebody who doesn't have that vesting process doesn't lose their third class like that would technically be wrong right and the union would get involved and they would reverse that so they would give the person who does have that reasonable assurance their class back and they would take it from somebody who doesn't have that same you know length of service and have that protection status but that protection status is only good if there are classes to be had. And because we've had so many classes that we've been losing in the community college districts, there's barely any to have after all of the full-time people get their sections, right? So a lot of community colleges have actually lost their adjunct part-time instructors because there are no classes to offer them. And even if there are, they may be only able to um, offer them one or two when they used to offer them three. So now the question that I had was, well, what happens with the people who have that priority of assignment for a certain number of classes, right? Because if you've earned your vesting status at three classes, now they're saying, well, they can offer you up to four, right? So is there going to (laughs) be... Like, what's the process for determining that fourth class? Are they just going to have it, you know, cycle through people if there's a fourth class available to them? And then just say, okay, well, this time it's your turn, and then maybe next semester it's this person's turn, and the next semester it's this person's turn. Like, that's, I guess, we're going to have to figure out. And the other part of that is that just because it is, and it's actually in the verbiage of the proposition, but... Just because it's available doesn't mean that it's guaranteed, right? Because, of course, there is still a process for how people go about getting these assignments. And there are also processes regarding people not being guaranteed employment from term to term. So that part of it has not changed. 
right? You're only being employed by the district to teach a certain number of classes from the start of the term till the last day of the term. That's it. So that's not, it doesn't read like that's changing because those things do go on a semester by semester basis and they fluctuate constantly. Now, one of the things that it does mention in the proposal under, so this is 87482.3, section two, it says the, it is the intent of this legislature that both of the following shall occur. A, the adoption of provisions in compliance with subdivision in Um, shall be included as part of the usual and customary negotiations between the community college district and the exclusive representative for part-time temporary faculty. B, it says a community college district shall establish minimum standards for the terms of reemployment preference for part-time temporary faculty assignments. That's basically what I was saying, like the vesting process through the negotiation process between the community college district and the exclusive representative for part-time temporary faculty. These standards shall include all of the following. So now I'm going to go over those. The first one is the length of part, excuse me, the length of time part-time temporary faculty have served at the college or district the number of courses part-time temporary faculty have taught at the community college or district, the evaluations of temporary faculty conducted pursuant to section 87663 and other related methods of evaluation that can be reliably that can reliably be used to assess educational impact of temporary faculty as it relates to student success and um, I just noticed that that's actually a really big deal the next one is the availability willingness and expertise of part-time temporary faculty to teach specific classes or take on specific assignments that are necessary for student instruction or services. It says the additional standards may be considered and established through the negotiation process. Well, that would be, you know, via the union as necessary. Standards established to pursuant to clause two shall reflect the processes and procedures for both of the following assigning part-time temporary faculty to teach courses or staff non-classroom assignments and evaluating part-time temporary employees. So that third one that I, I'll read it again because I, I kind of stopped after I read it. I was like, oh, that's really important. Um, it says the evaluations of temporary faculty conducted and other related methods of evaluation can reliably be used to assess educational impact of temporary faculty as it relates to student success. That's actually important because the, the question would be, how do you measure the student's success. Because like I said, the funding was to help mine that equity gap. So in this case, it's saying that for part-time people, their methods of evaluation need to show the educational impact that they're having on student success. Generally speaking, those are done through student learning outcomes in the past, so SLOs, and those things are usually printed on the syllabus, but they are also on Generally, the uh, department websites for any of these, you know, college campuses for their departments, it'll tell you what the student learning outcomes of that course are. And then the instructors get to have, they get to decide how they want to assess it. So one of the 
student learning outcomes might be to learn the difference between primary and secondary sources, right? That's what the college has decided. It's gone through the state. It's passed. So that's what they're doing. Now, each individual instructor can assess how to do that. So for like myself, when I had that SLO as one of my classes, I had a module and I would have them read through what's the difference between a primary and secondary source. I created like a whole little page with images and charts and graphs to show them like which is which. And then at the end of that, I had a non-graded quiz. And so I would ask them to tell me which one of these is a primary source, which one's a secondary source. And then I would have to set a goal. So my goal might be 80% of the class is going to get this right. Now, if only 70% of the class got it right, then technically I didn't meet my goal, right? Um, And I wouldn't be penalized for anything like that because it was a goal set, but I'd have to say, okay, well, what am I going to do in the future to try to get that other 10%? So each instructor has a way to do that. And it's generally been done through student learning outcomes. But this is saying that this particular provision within this, you know, AB 1856 is that they want to see if the methods of evaluation that can reliably be used to assess educational impact. So To me, that's one of those loopholes, right? Because they're saying that, they're essentially saying that if you're not showing that you're having a positive educational impact as a part-time temporary employee, then you won't be asked back, right? Um, That they can let you go. I don't know if they'd be able to offer you less classes. See, that's what I mean by like reading what it says. They can't technically offer you less than 85% if you're an employee. So that makes me think, are they just going to then let you go as an employee? Or is it something where they have to they have to be able to offer you at least 85%, but they don't have to offer you that 85%, right? They may say, well, we only have room for you to teach one or two. That's probably how it's going to go, right? They'll probably keep people, but maybe they'll give them one class as opposed to giving them four. Because again, most campuses don't have enough classes to offer everybody the max of what they can already have legally now, which is three classes. It's very rare at the community college for that, for, you know, adjunct instructors to be getting the max of what they are allowed to teach because we are losing so many students each term and because the retention has been so bad between fall and spring semesters. So shy of the process that the community colleges already have for assessing student learning outcomes and letting the instructor sort of set what their target benchmark is for the students meeting those benchmarks, I'm kind of interested to know how they're going to decide if an instructor has <laughs> had an educational impact that they want to continue and if it'll be on the instructor to set a benchmark and then what will be the process of them setting the benchmark, having the support they need to meet that benchmark and then achieving it or if it'll be set by the department And then, you know, within the department, how they'll go about determining what the percentage is, right, for the benchmark, if they're going to go by SLOs or what, how they're going to assess the effectiveness of the instructor as part of that requirement. Because that part, I believe, is new entirely. I don't think that that's something that is carried over from the previous writing of the percentage of the classes. And then because something that I like to do in classes is discuss not only 
how it would affect one group but another from a business perspective for the college campuses, you have to imagine that if this is new, that they're going to be creating new ways in which to assess that, and it may impact the hiring that they have available, the positions that they have available even to fill, how they go about determining who's going to get that last class, and how they determine among the part-time instructors who is being effective to the point that they want to continue to offer them the employment. So I'm going to leave it off here, but I did want to talk about it again. This is AB1856. It's regarding community colleges and part-time employees. And like we've been discussing, it's not just about it in general for instructors and staff to be able to get up to 85% of what would be considered a full-time load, but also how their jobs are going to be impacted in practice and how that may affect the things available to them currently when it comes to the district setting standards for medical benefits, if they offer other types of benefits to faculty, as well as the vesting or priority of assignment process. So thank you all as always for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day or evening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.